Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session How to Be an Ethical Carnivore, featuring Matthew Evans in conversation with Sarah Armstrong, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to this session on How to Be an Ethical Carnivore. I'm, uh, I'm actually Sarah Armstrong, not Nicole Abadie, who's listed on the program. She couldn't make it. But don't worry, I had a lot of time to read the book and prepare. I didn't just find out this morning. <laughs> um, and I'll be talking to Matthew Evans, uh, farmer, author, TV presenter, whose latest book is On Eating Meat, The Truth About Its Production and the Ethics of Eating It. After years as a big city food critic, Matthew bought a farm in Tasmania's Huon Valley where he lives with his family and runs a restaurant on their farm uh, where they serve food they grow. His farming adventures have been featured in the SBS TV series The Gourmet Farmer and there's a new series of it just started, uh, this one with a focus on the importance of good soil. I think the first episode was on Thursday. Yeah, yeah just Thursday. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you may also have seen him on the TV series For the Love of Meat or on What's the Catch, which was about um, advocating for a sustainable seafood industry. He's written 12 books on food, including Real Food Companion and the scarily titled memoir, Never Order Chicken on a Monday. <laughs> and his latest on eating meat is a book about animal welfare, about the secrecy of the intensive meat farming industry, and about how those of us who don't eat meat are deluding ourselves to think that means we're not complicit in animal cruelty. And it's about the damage caused by extremism in the meat industry and among vegan activists. In other words, a book not afraid to challenge the reader a book that asks us all to take an informed position on what we choose to eat. Um, so you write in your book, Matthew, that Fat Pig Farm, your farm yeah, uh, in Tasmania, has informed a lot of your thinking on this topic. Can you, before we kind of dive into some of the uh, you know, nuts and bolts of your book, can you just paint us a picture of that farm, what you grow there, the landscape, what your day looks like? Yeah, uh, sure. So the farm is 70 acres, uh, 26 or so hectares, um, uh, and it's a mixed farm. Um, my son, he's nine years old, he calls it a mixed up farm, and he's probably right. Um, but what that means is we have a market garden uh, that takes up just under two acres. We have a small, a micro dairy, we're a licensed dairy, so we milk between one and three cows at any one time, and we have uh, a little beef herd, um, uh, um, of cattle, we have some goats and some chooks and a heritage orchard, so it was all apple growing country. So it's, it's green, well, you know, a lot of the time it used to be, green rolling hills. Uh, they're still rolling. Um, uh, last summer they weren't very green and um, uh, it's a, it, it was the, the part of Tasmania that gave the name, uh, the state the name the Apple Isle um, because 90% of the apples exported from Tasmania, uh, which all went to the UK in the 60s, um, 70s, uh, they came from this region. So it's old apple growing country. And, and so what is your sort of day-to-day -day routine like? Yeah, I, I get up in the morning and milk, uh, milk the cows, or cow at the moment. Um, uh, then I go home and have breakfast. Then I uh, head out into the farm and, and feed animals. So my wife uh, looks after the market garden, um, and she calls that the workhorse of the farm, and that's because she looks after the two acres and I look after the other 68 acres. But actually, she's got way more work, uh, way more work. Um, the, the garden costs us more in you know, inputs and time. 
uh, and uh, you know everything in pretty much than, than the rest of the farm put together. So I generally do livestock and then I cook. Also, we have a little restaurant on site, so I cook in the restaurant. I make the small goods and um, all that kind of so stuff. The salamis and yeah, the yeah the salamis. Um, uh, you know what we try to do is is 90 to 95 percent of what we grow comes from within our fence line. So it's a very simple concept that paddock to plate cliche. And we wanted to see how far you could push it. Um, and where we can't push it is into things like pulses and uh, things like wheat. Uh, we don't, you know, we buy flour and we buy in generally our pulses um, and some olive oil. But pretty much everything else we try, we try to grow um, and, and usually succeed. So getting down to uh, the question of meat then, uh, I was actually really surprised to read how much meat Australians eat. Like on average, each of us consume more than 110 kilograms of meat a year. Uh, that's a lot, more than three times the global average. So, and most of those animals that we eat, two out of three, as you say, um, grow, are grown on intensive farms. So can you tell us about your efforts to get a good look at some of these intensive farms? Um, and what you know about the life for animals on those farms. Yeah, so, so on our, um, our little farm, we, we do what might be described as extensive um, uh, agriculture or grazing and agriculture. So we, we, we give animals a lot of space. And I was very interested, um, as someone who's chosen to eat meat, to see how things were done on a more intensive scale. So, so um, uh, most of the meat that ends up on dinner plates of Australians comes from more intensive farms. I was very keen to see behind the, the lock gates and, the, and in, in the sheds of, of our most intensive farms. And what's really interesting about that is how disinterested they were. And so to give you an example, so when you measure pig farms, you measure in terms of number of sows, breeding mothers, mother pigs. So um, Australia's biggest pig farm has 45,000 sows, um, Riverley, based near Albury. And we've got Jackie, Denise and Evita. <laughs> and so, so, um, so I don't think Riverley looks like um, our farm. Uh, our pigs wallow outside, they, they give birth out, outside, they have shed, shelters, and they also build a nest. Uh, mother pigs build a, uh, you know, it looks like a little haystack, mini haystack just before they give birth. And I was very interested to see how it would look at Riverley because I don't think if you've got 45,000 sows each giving birth to, uh, you know, uh, on average 13 piglets per litter, having 2.2 piglets uh, litters a year, um, whatever that is, the numbers are you know, well over a million um, pigs um, uh, raised a year. I don't think you're doing that for your own consumption. You're doing that for Australians. And, and Riverley were very keen to tell me that, um, uh, that the interests of their shareholders um, are more important than the interests of meat eaters. And so they were very keen not to show me behind the, the, um, the closed gates of their farm. And it makes me wonder what, what they've got to hide if they think... I mean, legally they're obliged, if, if, if it's going to affect their share price, you know, they're legally they're obliged to not show um, what happens behind the, the gates. But I would have thought um, it would, I would have thought it'd be incumbent on, on meat producing uh, businesses to have social licence and to be proud of what they do and want Australians to feel comfortable about what's done in their name. Um, but that doesn't, didn't seem to be the case. You save your harshest criticism, I think, for the chicken meat industry, yeah, uh, yeah, intensive this, industry. Yeah, this book is subtitled uh, Never Order Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of chicken in your, in <laughs> not, your not, not just on a Monday. No, ever. Uh, yeah. and, and chicken's our most popular meat now. Like, uh, I was talking to someone earlier today, we was saying chicken used to be like really special. It was the Sunday yeah. roast, it was the Christmas yeah. roast. Yeah, so we used to, 
you know, we used to eat, I don't know what it was, five kilos of chicken on uh, per year about 50 years ago. Now we eat about 50 kilos of chicken per person per year. Um, it's our most common meat. So, you know, people go, oh, Aussie is lamb. Well, it's about eight kilos a year. Beef's about 50 or just under. Um, uh, you know, uh, the modern chicken is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a miracle of breed and, f and feed and housing. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like if you take all of hu human ingenuity in terms of how to get a, an animal from the egg to the table, you know, they can get it down to about 28 to 35 days now. Um, it used to be 118 days. Um, how to get it, uh, you know, from the egg to the table really quickly. Um, how you can have as many as you can in a shed. So you can have up to you know, about 40 kilos per square metre, so whatever that is, you know, if you imagine sort of 18 to 20 birds, you know, per square metre of floor space. They're not in cages, that's the average space, but it's not much um, room for them to move around. And, um, and they've been bred to be uh, uh, bland. The stated aim of the industry is to breed bland, tender meat. The other thing, they've which they do, uh, you know, it, it, to me it's a bit like animal tofu. Um, it, it's, you know, I think something, I forget the numbers, but like a vast majority or vast, vast amount of the, the chicken meat they produce in Australia, 650 million chickens a year, if you just let that sit there, 650 million chickens a year end up on our dinner plates. A lot of that's marinated. And as any good cook knows, you marinate because something is um, lacking in flavour. And they marinate it because they bred something that's bland and tender, which to me seems a bit like animal tofu. You've, you've, you visited a particular chicken factory that you said haunts you still. What was so terrible about yeah. this? Yeah. And these are the good guys. These were an RSPCA-approved um, people. They, they were one of the first RSPCA-approved chicken uh, farms and, or farmers, and they're vertically integrated, which means they... They own, they own or lease the farms where you might have 50 to 60,000 birds in a shed or whatever and then, and then they, um, they own the processing plant, so where they, they the slaughterhouse essentially, um, the cutting shop. And um, so this place killed, on the day I was there, 160,000 chickens. One of the conveyor belts was over four kilometres long, so the chickens would be shackled uh, by, the, by the hawks. They were gassed first, so, um, so they're unconscious when their, their throats are slit. Um, and they get shackled by the, by, by the hocks to have their throats split, and then they, 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 they wound around this room getting plucked and gutted and, uh, and everything, and then their, their um, heads and, and feet cut off. And, uh, yeah, that, that conveyor belt was four kilometres long. And I was there for a large part of the day, and I saw a lot of that 160,000 chickens hanging, hanging from the gallows. And I think it, it really impressed on me, I guess, how much meat we eat, how industrialised the process is. Um, and I think the other thing that really impressed on me was how we are all now separated from death. Like, if you look back 5,000 years or so, we were all pretty much farmers or hunter-gatherers and farmers, or um, if you anyone went to Bruce Pascoe, I've got to be really careful with my terminology from now on. And 5,000 years, oh, and there was a few priests about 5,000 years ago and a few tax collectors probably, probably the priest tax collectors. Anyway, <laughs> most of us grew food, right? 5,000 years before that, we were pretty much all hunter-gatherers and farmers, Bruce, um, uh, at the same time. Um, but anyway, people were intimately connected to their, how they grew and uh, harvested food, and they saw death, human death and an other animal death um, all the time. Now, in a chicken plant, this was a medium-sized operation. This wasn't considered a big chicken plant, right? This isn't owned by the two biggest companies in, in Australia. This is one of the smaller, you know, middle-sized operations. 160,000 deaths. I don't know if humans are hardwired to witness and be around that amount of death 
all day, every day? I, 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 I would think not. I think that, that, that in evolutionary terms, it would be, be a strange human who could do that for very long and not eventually be affected by it. You, you in fact, uh, uh, sort of profile in your book someone you know from Tasmania, a man who was a, a, a slaughterman for years, ran an abattoir and then a mobile butchery. Um, what's his name? Uh, uh, David Stevens. Yeah, what did you learn from him about what it is to be a slaughterman? Yeah, so David ran the local abattoir for a while. He was a, he was um, he grew up on a dairy and then he ended up um, rearing pigs and didn't like the the white, yeah, he didn't think they were being humanely treated, so he he started to run his own abattoir. Then eventually just ran an abattoir, and he he killed I think I think it's like fifty thousand cattle in his time as a slaughterman, and he wasn't a slaughterman for that many years, and it wasn't a very big ab abattoir, but he he was there for the death of about fifty thousand cattle, and um, and uh, and he was involved in all processes. It wasn't killing every day. He was involved in the butchery and you know a lot of other bits. So so I can't. So so other people must be in abattoirs killing a lot more animals than him is what I'm trying to say. Um, and yet he one day looked into the eye of one particular animal and really couldn't eat beef anymore. And he his 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 children are affected by it because they worked in the abattoir. And and I think he's a really, really lovely man. Um, and. He he feels he he wasn't killing those animals because he wanted to eat them. He was killing because you and well the meat eaters in the room and um, you know, it's usually non meat eaters in every room. Um, but the meat eaters, he's killing it on behalf of us, and he was taking on the responsibility. And, and I I felt really bad that he'd been damaged by that process, and his family had been damaged by that process. And I think we ask a lot of the people who do that in our name. So what's the solution that we obviously that we don't eat meat is one solution, or that we kill the animals ourselves? Yeah, I mean, there is the suggestion. I've heard people um, say that in some cultures they would have a system of um, where you, if you were killing, you know, meat-eating cultures, uh, if you were doing the killing, you could only do it for three months at a time. Then you had to go off and do something else for nine months of the year. And so only three months of every year you would be involved in that process. And it seems like a, you know, not a bad thing. Um, it's kind of giving the weight of what is happening to... Yeah, to those people. The, the killing of the animal. It's like saying this is actually a really significant thing that's happening. Yeah, yeah, and I think and I think if you if you if you're expecting someone to do it constantly, mm. there's a book called I think it's called Twelve Seconds about you know a, a big um, animal being slaughtered every twelve seconds in this abattoir in America. Um, if you're asking people to do that and they become damaged, then they become dehumanised, and then it, you know that can never be a good thing. Not only for the animals in in the slaughterhouse, but then for for, for general society and. Um, and and yeah, you because know, then you've got disturbed people in society who who um, might be affected by the process. But I think, but the, it's a very interesting thing because you know, as I was saying, it's not it's only a couple of hundred years since we all got removed from death, and um, uh, and we were all, we would all know and see death in some form not that long ago. Um, and what we've got is is 99% of the population are um, are removed from food growing pretty much entirely unless they grow a little bit of food in their backyard. And 1% of the population are involved in, in actually growing food for the rest of us. And out of those 1%, only a tiny proportion are involved in the death. And so we're, we're sort of separated. And that's why this, this you mentioned earlier about the, the extremes. And then we get the extremes, I think, because of this separation. So, so the people who've never seen death are abhorred by it when they suddenly see it, even though 200 years ago you would have, been, you would have seen it and been part of it. And... Um, uh, and then you've got the other people on the other end who are just surrounded by death and who probably aren't, we, most of us wouldn't be built to cope with that long term. Of course, Byron Bay has a, a long history of um, 
slaughterhouses and abattoirs. I mean, there was the whaling industry here. There was right. the abattoir on the beachfront at Belongil. There was the Sunnybrand chicken factory just down the road. And also in the last few months, there's a small local abattoir just shut down that mm. used to kill chickens for a local company who do pasture-raised chickens. And it's like this shutting down of small abattoirs is a real issue, isn't it, for the people who are doing the small-scale extensive agriculture. Yeah, and, and I think um, and I think that's part of a discussion. I don't really go into that in the book, but it is, a, I think, a, it's, it's sort of... I try to bring up lots of things in, uh, things in the book for people to talk about. It's like not, it's not, this isn't the end of the conversation. It's like a, st- a conversation starter is, is this idea of, you know, who, who can do it, you know, the, the, the being surrounded by death. And small abattoirs are, are closing down. We used to have, like, something like 40 in, in Tasmania 15, 20 years ago, and we've got sort of three, four now. And as they get more concentrated, you're putting more pressure on those um, big places to have certain people doing the killing all the time. But from the perspective of um, uh, quality of the meat and the animal welfare, you know, having local abattoirs is really important because the, the less distance an animal travels, the less time it spends at a, uh, the place it's going to uh, be processed is, is a plus. So we, we're, getting, we're concentrating abattoirs and in the process we, I think we're damaging people but we're also damaging animals more. So just to get back to the, the chickens, you visited an organic chicken factory just up in southern Queensland. How much better is the life for a chicken than an organic chicken? Yeah, so uh, so I, I haven't been, just to give you an idea, I've never got into the most intensive uh, chicken farms in Australia. I didn't get into the most intensive chicken sheds. But I went into an RSPCA-approved chicken farm, which is about 70% of the market now, and I did get in, go into an organic one. An organic one... Um, uh, gives the birds access to the outdoors. They can dust bathe, they can peck in the grass, they can find spots in the shade, they can look for grubs. Um, they've got something to do. They get periods of uh, complete light and complete dark. And I guess a chicken, it allows the chicken to express its chickenness. A chicken can only recognise, I think, 100 faces or something like that, you know, like another 100 birds. So when you put a, you know, a bird into a shed with with 49,000 others or whatever, they can get a bit disorientated and it's not necessarily good for them. But if they're, if they're, if they're able to move more freely, I guess they can express their chickenness. And we don't, we don't, I don't presume to know how a chicken thinks, but I think, I guess if a chicken can, wants to peck in the dirt and it wants to dust bathe, then it's probably um, good that it does it. So uh, uh, they also feed them organic grain on an organic farm. So they, so they, what that means is there hasn't been pesticides and herbicides used in growing the grain. So I mean, for me, that's a pretty decent standard uh, welfare welfare bird you know it's not the gold standard gold standard is probably raised on pasture you know where the chicken can can roam f- more freely and is on fresh grass every day these the sheds i went to were, were fixed but in terms of um uh you know allowing a chicken to to do what a chicken wants to do i think they're a pretty pretty good operation the thing is that an organic chicken will cost a lot more than the five bucks you pay to <laughs> as you say walk out of the supermarket with a roast chook um yeah. can you just read a bit from your book um the bit with the tag that says cheap meat. <laughs> I've given him yellow stickies on the book. Yeah, you did. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, the cost of meat. Is that the one? Ah, oh, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. The problems come not with our intentions, because most people have good intentions. The pro- problem comes with our actions. Because no matter what we say about sustainability, about ethics, about our desire not to harm the animal, the environment, the world we live in, simply with our food choices, when faced with items on the supermarket shelf, we buy the cheapest. 
We say we hate the idea of battery hens, then buy cage eggs. We are shocked at seeing pigs in sow stalls for virtually, that's like a pig cage, um, for virtually their entire adult lives, but we'll happily buy the cheapest pork chops uh, we can, knowing or perhaps suppressing in our hearts that the system they came from wasn't as good as the one that produced those expensive chops from an organic farm. We have our standards that we are proud to stand by and then fail our own standards when it comes to the reality of what we put in our shopping basket. I'm just wondering, though, if it's like a middle-class luxury to worry about how your um, meat lives and dies. If you're yeah. worrying about your rent or putting food on the table for your kids, you're not going to worry about that, are you? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it, look, it is, it's middle-class, but I think it's, well, it's more broad than middle-class. I think this whole debate is can seem farcical when you think, you know, 10% of Australians probably don't have food security. Like, they don't have enough to eat or they don't have enough of the right things to eat. So for those people, this is a ridiculous conversation, as for most people in the world who don't have enough to eat. I mean, they're not arguing about veganism. They're just happy if someone, if they can get something. Um, you know, there's lots of people around the world who don't, who don't have enough to eat. But I think it's also a very normal thing for humans to, uh, when they have enough to eat and then they... And then we use food within our culture to celebrate um, events, to you know, um, to have feast days and fast days, to bind families and cultures. That that at some point we go, well, what what's the impact of my eating? That's a very normal place to be. And I think, yes, uh, you know, it can seem very middle class the conversation, but um, we we all have to eat, and most of us want to think we're not doing too much damage uh, when we eat to the environment or the or the animal. Um, uh, and so um, are there better ways? And um, there are always better ways. We're clever, we're human beings with you know, big brains and we can always do better and most of us can make better decisions but sometimes you need a little bit of um, information to help you make a better decision. You're saying in the book that really the debate about um, meat eating has been seconded both by those who want us to just implicitly trust what they're doing behind their locked gates, locked farmed gates, and those who want us to eat absolutely no meat at all and you really do take it up to the vegans in this book uh, although you kind of admire their position you know that they've thought about the issues yeah. uh, and that there may even be you know an uneasy alliance between vegans and ethical carnivores but you do also accuse them of um, extremism and double standards what do you like about what they're doing and what are your criticisms yeah uh uh, yes, I always sometimes feel like I'm an apologist for meat eaters, and I'm not trying to justify meat eating. I, I, I want people to make their own decisions about their meat eating. So if you don't want to eat meat, fine. If you want to be vegan, fine. And you want to eat some meat, fine. But I want all, everybody to be aware of what they eat. And I think the idea is the, the important thing is it's not veganism that's the that I find is is uh, much of an issue. I don't really have an issue with veganism in uh, in the book. As a, as a belief system for people to have. What I, I, I guess I find I have an issue with is militant veganism because um, that's uh, trying to impose your belief system on someone else. So, um, so I believe in homeschooling, right? And homeschooling guarantees that people won't take their kids to school, there'll be less carbon emissions. Where I live, Tasmania, people are driving at dawn and dusk to take their kids to school, there'll be less animals die, right? I believe in homeschooling. I lie down in the streets of Melbourne and say everyone should homeschool, right? We tell we just go like that. Like, no, you can't tell us what to believe with that. Defining yourself by your diet is is not a, you know, it's not the most brilliant thing in the world to do. Defining yourself by your humanity is more important. And if you are trying to impose your belief system on someone else, um, the best way to get them to not accept your belief system is to attack them. So if you if you if you attack if you say meat is murder to me. 
Um, well, not me, because I don't really care, but, um, you know, like we, you can have that argument forever, you know. Um, uh, actually, Brussels sprouts are murder on our farm. That's where I kill most animals. Uh, we have lots of aphids, and we don't, you know, we're organic, so they, we kill lots of um, animals when we eat Brussels sprouts. But anyway, um, you, you can say meat is, is murder to me, or to, to your general Australian, average Australian, and what they think is, you've attacked every Christmas dinner that my, my mother ever cooked, or my grand, yeah, you've, kept, you've, you've attacked my grandma because she, she was really proud of her roast beef, or whatever it is, because we have these very strong cultural and emotional attachments to it. And so the best way to con convert, convince someone of your, uh, you know, to, to change beliefs is not to attack them, and it's not to, you know, it, you know what's happened since, since the raids on farms, and this, is, this, breaks, this breaks my heart, because I'm, you know, because I can just sort of, this is historically what has happened. Since, since a lot of activism in the last 12 months, New South Wales government, Victorian government and the federal government are all clamping down on not intensive farms, they're clamping down on the people who broke into those farms. So what they're doing is saying, uh, uh, they're saying, oh, yeah, it needs to be open and accountable, they're not going to do nothing about that, I can guarantee you, and there'll be still no access, but those farms will, will get more secretive and the, the penalties for the people who break into those farms are going up. And so the, the potential for worse animal welfare outcomes, and it's only the potential, it may not happen, but the potential for worse animal welfare outcomes uh, is increased by vegan activism. And that breaks my heart because the idea was to try and help the animals and you're potentially making it worse. So what I like about veganism is they... They've given it some thought. They've got a, you know, got a decent, um, you know, got a framework. It's a, quite an easy framework. It doesn't, if you want to drill down into it, it doesn't always make intellectual sense. But doesn't, you, we all have to find at which point we drill down because, because there's no impacts. You know, the only way there can be no impacts on, on the world and on animals in particular is no us, right? So it doesn't, you know, if you're wearing cotton, there's been an impact. If you've driven a car, there's been an impact. You've flown in a plane, there's been an impact. If you've got a smartphone, someone had to mine that stuff and make this, it, there's, there's always an impact on animals. And we all have to find our own place in that as to where we're comfortable. And not eating meat is a nice clean line and not wearing leather shoes is a nice clean line, but um, it doesn't mean that no animal is affected, it just means maybe a different animal in a different place at a different time. I think something that really surprised me in reading your book was to find out how many animals die in the growing of crops. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, and, and this, uh, you know, I, on a, in Sadie's, my wife's two, and a, you know, two acres of market garden, um, she kills more animals than we kill to grow fruit and vegetables. She kills more animals to grow fruit and vegetables than we do to provide, you know, tonnes of meat, essentially, for the, for, the, for the table. And I was interested in that as a concept. So we generally kill insects, and generally most people don't, actually, you know, even when they say they love animals, they actually don't care about insects, but I'm sure some do. Um, but it's not just insects, it's, it's also um, uh, mammals, and generally rodents that we kill in the garden. Um, uh, and, uh, and we kill them because they, they compete with us for food, and they're eating our crops. And I wonder if that could be extrapolated, if we're killing more animals to grow uh, fruit and vegetables than we are to, to, to rear meat animals, um, how does that look on a broader scale? So I just looked... Well, I went to a farm where they grow peas and they kill 1,500 animals a year. And 
uh, that, that they've got crop protection permits for. And um, What are those animals? Yeah, 150 or so, over 100 anyway, a deer. So they're pretty large. They've got big brown eyes. You know, they, they meet the criteria for an animal you should care about more. Um, <laughs> it's probably a thousand possums from memory and a few hundred wallabies. Uh, again, they're cute. Um, so, you know, and then I, I, go, I went to my neighbour. I don't know if this made the book, but uh, I'm pretty sure it did. The Apple and Pear Growers Association think I'm single-handedly ru ruining the, their industry <laughs> by pointing out the fact that, like, my one of my neighbours, I've got lots of apple-growing neighbours, um, uh, was telling me, oh, yeah, I've just shot 120 possums in the last three months to protect my apple crop. Now, um, uh, you know, when, when I looked at these, I thought, well, how does, what's happening there? What's going on? It's like, well, actually, it makes sense. And when you read, this is the really interesting thing I've discovered over the last month of talking about the book is I had this lovely protester. Oh, God, love Hobart. We had a first protester at an event and it was in Hobart. <laughs> and she had this beautiful Leo Tolstoy quote, he was a vegetarian, on a, on a stick outside a bookshop. I mean, you know, she was wearing a bear suit going, saying, go veg, ask me how. Was, she was really lovely. She was so polite. She was great. And she had this, and she'd done the literary thing, got a Tolstoy quote, you know, and... Um, why am I telling you this story? I've lost myself. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the animals that die in the, the crops. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and, and um, you know, so, so, you know, when I was looking at, at how many animals die, you know, you know they, they, people like, like her are like, well, you know, if they're rodents or whatever, they're, you know, and they're sort of collateral damage. But, you know, when someone kills a possum, they, they trap a possum and they, they look at the animal in the face before they blow its brains out. And, and when they go, it's collateral damage or it's something that happens on the side, farmers grow food for you to eat, right? Oh, yeah, the Tolstoy thing. So, what, so the ethics, when you read about the ethics of eating animals, I, I, and I challenge anyone, I hope someone can point it out to me that it's different, but the ethics of eating animals, everything that gets sent to me and, 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 and this really beautiful stuff that people write is all right, written by people who don't grow food. None of them... Oh, they, might, they might have a veggie patch, but none of them grow food commercially. And I thought, wow. So when I looked into it, 40,000 you know, ducks, native ducks, wild native ducks, um, die a year for, you, for them to grow rice in New South Wales. Wow. Now, 40,000 ducks. How many of the ducks are they killing in the wetlands of Victoria where people are lying down in protests? And it's not for, I don't know, maybe it's 40,000, I don't know, but there's a lot of ducks. We kill 30,000 camels a year, not even to protect crops, that's just to, um, to protect our arid areas. We kill 5 million kangaroos a year to protect our, our crops. Some of that's to protect grasslands. We could grasslands. be eating them. Sorry? We could be eating them. And we could be eating them. Well, this, and that's, well, that's why uh, there's lots of conversations, that's why I say it's a conversation starter. If you're going to kill 30,000 camels, which I know you can eat, I've eaten it in, in China, if you're going to kill 30,000 camels, those camels are shot and left to rot, right? But they're really big, meaty animals. So if we killed 30,000 of them, and Australians are eating 110 kilos of meat a year, we must be rearing another 30,000 animals of the same size and killing them. So we've ki we killed two animals to eat one. We're killing five million can kangaroos a year. Um, God knows how many wild pigs and, and, and all the other things. And we're not, we're not using them. In Tasmania, we kill 1.3 million wallabies a year as crop protection, right? And, and only a tiny percent end up as human food. And then we, then we rear... Other, you know, so they, most of those get wasted, and then we rear another animal to kill that for food. And I think, wow, we're so clever. We can, you should see how clever they are with these chicken sheds and you know, the, 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 the way they do that. And then we waste it. We, they kill 16 million male chicks a year, you know, the little laying hens, you know, and you have your eggs. This is where I, th I find vegans, have, you do have the moral high ground over vegetarians. Because if you eat eggs, you know, they can only come from a female bird, and every, for every 
uh, egg that's hatched, you know, 50, you know, two eggs that hatched, and, you know, one, one will be female, one will be male. So 16 million one-day-old male chicks are live mulched or gassed every year. And I go, we've got such big brains, we create 16 million lives and throw them in the garbage bin. You know, like, what is that about? We must be better. I did actually, on this tour, find a, a farm that does, you know, 100 chickens a week, at least at some, 100 roosters a week. They take those little chicks and rear them up to be meat chickens and sell them in Western Sydney. But that's only 100 out of this, you know, whatever that is, you know, five, five, um, what was that, 5,000 out of 16 million a year. But, you know, I, I find the waste appalling. I, you know, if we're going to eat meat, if we're going to farm, uh, you know, I, what I'm trying to find is ways that we can do it better. And tell us about um, dairy, because you've got a line in it. If you eat dairy, you might as well eat veal. That's your chapter heading in your book. Yeah. Tell us and I, why. Oh, look, I forget the numbers. Is it 40,000 40, uh, boy cows, calves born on dairy farms every year? So, so it's like the chickens. So if you want to have milk, you have to have a mother cow, and the mother cow has to give birth. They're like, they're like us. They're a mammal. They have to give birth to lactate. Um, so, uh, so once a year... Um, the mothers give birth. Now, they are getting better at this with... Um, you can actually um, sex test the semen now. So it's getting better. But essentially, um, I think it's 40,000 boy calves are born a year to dairy cows so that we can have milk. And a large proportion of those are um, uh, killed by a, um, a blunt force to the head, a hammer blow to, um, uh, um, to the head uh, at two, three days old. Um, a, a lot do go to an abattoir, but a lot of them go at about a week old. Um, to an abattoir where they're sold as hamburger mince. And if and a lot of that happens because beef breeds are different from dairy breeds. So no one values this little boy calf. I think you should value it because it's a sentient being. It knows fear and suffering and, you know, all those higher level... has higher level thoughts. I would think it would be good to value the, the life we have created and rear it for a few months as veal, okay? So, so you need a veal industry. Well, I can't buy veal. I can only buy it from, I think, one butcher that I can find in Hobart. There's probably a couple, but I can't buy it at any of my local butchers. Um, you know, and, and so, so the, the calf's still going to die, but I think it's incumbent on us as humans who have brought this calf into the world to give it some value of life. And it's not like veal in Europe where they're put in a little box and kept anemic and, you know, all that kind of stuff. These, they can go out in the, into the field and eat grass. And if you eat it at five, six months old, it can be, it's, a, it's a valid form of meat. But if you're, eating, if you're drinking dairy and not eating veal, someone has slaughtered a three- to seven-day-old calf for you. And, and I think that's just such a... It's such an insult to Mother Nature and an insult to, to the, you know, the, 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 what has gifted us this, these lives in the first place. We can argue about whether the, you know, we should have created that life in the first place, but it's still, and it's still going to die, but, but we should value the lives, is, is what I guess I think with all of this, this stuff. Value the lives of the animals we've created on our, on our behalf. Is organic milk any better? Uh, not necessarily, no, no. Well, I don't, th I don't know there's anything in the organic uh, code that stipulates they have to care about the calves. I don't know. I'm not across that. But I know, I mean, Tasmania, there's a, there's a dairy that does it. And there's, a, um, there's one in is it Northern Victoria called How Now, um, where they, they, re they, keep, they keep the calves on the, on the, um, uh, on the mothers. So there, there are um, systems. There are places where they do it. Um, 
my mate has a cheesery in, in Tasmania and he's taking actually dual purpose breeds so they don't produce quite as much milk but the, the calves have more meat on them. Um, it's more like, a little bit more like a beef breed so they're more, worth more so he's rearing those. I mean people are doing good stuff but like, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things we kill um, for, you know, when, we, when we could do better. And you've got to think, we, again, we've created that life take it out at three, three to seven days, and then create another life and kill that one as well because we want to eat 110 kilos of meat a year. Can you just talk to us briefly about feral cats and the problem <laughs> there? <laughs> because I know it doesn't seems like a bit of a leap, I know, but I it's not there. a leap. Yeah, I've never eaten one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. This, I guess what I was really interested in was this idea of suffering and, and what we're doing and, and how what our place is. And I think... When you look at farms, and uh, um, good farming is looking at the world as an ecosystem, and it's very hard to get your head around that. And listening to Bruce Pascoe was really interesting because that ecosystem that Aboriginal people had um, inserted themselves into and were working within is very different than the ecosystem that we probably have now and, and can, can do now, but um, we can learn lessons from, from that. But, um, but one of the things that really came up was this idea of suffering and what suffers and how it suffers. And, and I started to look at our farm and try to work out where's the most suffering happening on our farm? Is it the rats that I poison? And I poison them in our garden. We've tried all sorts of humane traps and whatever and just never been able to get rid of the rats. Um, so we, we actually poison our, our rats and it's a terrible, slow, horrible death. Is that where most suffering happens? No. I, I hope most suffering doesn't happen with my farmed animals. I have a very high responsibility for the welfare of the animals to, 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 you know, to look after the pain and, and welfare of the animals in my care. And actually looked at um, our wild places, and that's actually where most suffering happens. And, and some of that suffering and, um, is caused by feral cats. And then when you look at the numbers of feral cats around Australia, we're not an isolated place. There's some estimates say up to 75 million native animals are killed every night by feral cats. Everything. Now feral cats are a really interesting thing because they're not like foxes and wild dogs as much um, because cats are, um, uh, they, they predate, so they'll, they'll, they'll catch, torture and kill the, 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 the prey and not necessarily eat, right? So they're just like a really, really bad thing. Um, you know, uh, and, and some of those are domestic cats that are doing it, but generally it's, it's the wild cats. And what I, when I was looking at this idea of suffering, where most suffering probably happens in, in Australia is probably cats torturing native animals every night of the year. And I thought, well, who's doing something about that? Because, because suffering is a very human construct. I mean, I, uh, you know, a, a, a Tassie devil doesn't care about the animal it's trying to eat. The, the, the hawk that, that plucks the eyes out of a, a sick wallaby doesn't care about the suffering of the wallaby. It's, you know, it's only humans that really probably have this idea of suffering. So if we're going to apply this idea of suffering, where should we apply it? We brought feral cats. They're, in a, they're foreign to our landscape. And, and I was interested in who, who, who are the people in our animal welfare um, and animal rights groups who care about suffering and what are they doing about feral cats? And the really interesting answer is, what are they doing? Um, nothing. And, and it's, it's like not all suffering is the same. If you're not doing something about feral cats, um, then you're not doing much about animal suffering in Australia. You can look at farmers and blame them, and it's really nice to have someone to point the finger at, isn't it? But, but farmers are doing stuff in, in other people's names. If our meat, if, you know, there are lots of farmers who do things that I don't think is great and I, they, they could do better at, but if you want to look at just the concept of suffering, the greatest suffering in Australia is probably caused by feral cats most nights of the week. And what are we doing about it as a, as a nation? A little bit. What are we doing about it as animal welfare organisations? Pretty much sweep 
FA. Um, and, and so it's very hard to be lectured to by pe people who talk about suffering if they're not doing something about other suffering and all suffering and considering we are just one animal in, in the environment and, and, uh, and, and, and actually feral cats are, act, are, are human responsibility. <clears throat> Let's talk about synthetic meat for a moment. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I don't get emotional about much, but watch me now. Um, a recent report uh, estimated that up to 60% of meat may come from non-animal sources by the year 2040. Uh, I gather that doesn't fit your picture of ethical meat eating. <laughs> yeah, are you thinking... Uh, well, there's two sorts of synthetic or fake meat. There's one which is muscle tissue grown in a lab, so they can just, you know, essentially clone muscle tissue in a lab. It's currently grown using bovine fetal syndrome, which is you have to kill a calf, unborn calf, to get. Um, but they'll replace that with, with a, a different alternative. Um, and the other is, uh, you know, turning pea protein or potato starch or soybeans into a meat substitute that bleeds. Um, uh, uh, it's got heme. It's a GM yeast that they use. It's like, G it's a soy isolate, I think, uh, that they genetically modified um, uh, and they extract it using it. It bleeds like a you know, pa uh, beef patty or something. Anyway, um, what I find really interesting about that discussion is, well, I really get emotional about this because I am 53 years old. I grew up in 1970s Canberra, right? And, and the reason I get really emotional about this topic is because my dad was a scientist. My, my dad was a chemist. He thought we could save the world. I love science. The book is full of sciencey stuff, right? I think scientists are great, but I don't trust them in the kitchen. <laughs> You've got to look at all of evolutionary history, right? And what we've designed, we're designed to eat, and what we 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 what we can taste, and our the brilliant capacity we have. We're all gifted with this ability to tell the nutrient density of food. You know, we know the modern chicken has a third less protein than it... Well, if you were old enough to eat the old chicken, you know, or eat a good chicken, the modern chicken has a third less protein. And you can tell that with your, the thing in your mouth. It's amazing. We're gifted with this capacity. But, so, you take all of human ingenuity and all the science and all the money, okay, that you can put into a, 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 a meat substitute. We've already done it with something, and it's much simpler. Like, there are 750 to 1,000 flavour compounds in meat... Meat is a really complicated thing in terms of the structure. We know that an animal that stands in a feedlot has a different structure and flavour than it does if it's managed to walk around you know, in a paddock and eat grass. And that's, they're really fine-tuning fine it. That's meat. We already have a, a processed food where we spent lots and lots of money and lots and lots of time trying to replicate something that you can get from an animal. And that, that you know, is margarine. Now, I don't care who you are, I grew up with margarine, man. All of human ingenuity, all of that intelligence, all of that money, all of that time, and the best you could fucking come up with <laughs> as a substitute for butter is margarine. <laughs> Sorry. I really feel this. I really yeah. feel this. You can, you can stand there and shout, meat's murder, and give me Tolstoy quotes. I don't care. It's like, fine. You can have your own belief system, but... Processed food, this is, and this is all this is, if you dig into this and you find that the people who are selling Doritos are behind the fake meat stuff, you know, whatever, you can dig into it and do your own research. It's just processed food. It hasn't made us richer. It hasn't made us healthier. It, you know, has it added anything to our cultural and gastronomic trajectory? No. No. Well, 
I shouldn't say it hasn't made us richer. If there's anyone from, you know, one of the, the, the processed food companies in the audience, yeah, you can put your hand up. But for the rest of us, it has done nothing. But, but, <laughs> if it satisfies a consumer who wants a tasty hamburger and it avoids the environmental impact and the animal welfare yeah. issues, why yeah. not? Yeah, replace a bad processed food with another bad processed food. But it, but it isn't... It isn't the magic bullet that people are seeking. And you also have to consider, you know, Nature had a really great um, uh, article on the, on the total footprint of, of protein. So, the, so uh, pea protein, which is used in some of these, and, and you know, there's, there's other proteins that they use in these. The total footprint, you know, uh, carbon emissions, water, land use of, say, pea, st pea protein uh, is greater for, uh, than, than it is for, for the same amount of protein from beef. You've got to think of... We have really dumb farming systems. So I just want to really, I know we're about to run out of time, but really quickly, a cow can eat a renewable resource. Grass, like any plant on earth, right? Grass creates its own food from the sun. Whoo, photosynthesis, bloody miracle. Turns sunlight, right? Takes, takes sunlight, uses the energy of sunlight, opens little you know, holes on its leaves, takes in carbon dioxide, turns it into carbohydrate, sugar, creates sugar. Give some of that to the microbes under the soil, some stays in the leaves. What a miracle. We can't eat the grass in, uh, the sugars in grass. It's made, turned into cellulose. A cow can t convert cellulose into uh, uh, high-quality protein, um, milk or meat, within 24 hours, right? We can't eat the grass. A cow can eat the grass. Now, that grass is a renewable resource. Hasn't, no, we haven't burnt any fossil fuels, no natural gas, no oil, no coal, to get that, that, um, that grass. So the cow is converting a, a renewable resource, something we can't eat, into, into meat. Now, if you've got a cow on an area that you could otherwise grow some other crop, is that the best use? No. If you're feeding a cow grain, which they're not designed to eat, um, that's not a very good use of that resource. But a cow eating grass, renewable resource, kill the cow, eat the cow where it's killed, you've, you've burnt no fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. so, it, so, so beef can be really, really low footprint but that doesn't mean that's the way we're doing it. And it's certainly not the way to do it a lot in America, but most of the stats we get are from America, don't always relate to here. But, there's a, but, but it's not the cows that, that differs, it's, their, it's the human, how the humans manage the animal and where it's shipped to and how it's, how it's used. But in terms of total land use, if you take animals out, in, out of a, 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 the environment, well, ecological systems don't exist without animals. So, so if you want to run a proper um, uh, environmentally balanced farm, um, animals can be part of the system. And some of those animals might be useful for food. They may not be. Um, they might just be animals that come and take your crop and bugger off or get blown out of the sky as they try um, by the farmer that's doing it on your behalf. Um, but uh, uh, most ecological systems exist with, with animals. And sometimes in some places, in some parts of the world, uh, yeah, we could use that um, animal to... You can actually create more food per acre using animals than you can without on, on some farming land. It's not true for all farming land. I'm going to jump in there because we're running out of time <laughs> and I want you to read that final quote <laughs> that I picked just to finish off. No worries. We could. We should have had longer than 45 minutes. We definitely should have. Okay. One day, I hope the baseline for animal welfare, for additives to their feed will be founded on what we as a society want as the community norm, not on something, not something foisted on us because of our ignorance or absence from the debate. I foresee a time when the worst meat will be a minor part of the market that even then matches the least of consumer expectations rather than the worst farming, 
rather than the worst farming producing most of the meat. That only happens now simply because the industry is conducted in secret and thinks that we don't give a damn. The reality, reality is we do give a damn. We just have to, have to show them that we do. I want those who care about our meat to get involved in the conversation, to start, not end the discussion of what good meat looks like. I've written not for all the times when you can't make a, a better choice, but for all the times you can make a difference to your table, to your body, the animals impacted on your behalf, and to the environment that nurtures us all. Eating meat isn't for everyone, but some meat, good meat, is probably not a bad thing to have in our diets. It's been that way since the dawn of time. The difference is, for the first time, we now have to make conscious decisions about how our diet impacts the world and all its living beings, livestock and wildlife alike. Now is the time for meat eaters to take responsibility for what happens in their name by farmers and to animals around the world. And I just hope we're big enough and have the awareness enough to make that happen. Please join me in thanking Matthew Evans. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.